If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you've been with us here at Bloomfield, you know that I'm currently preaching through the book of Exodus, but we uh, paused in that study in December for an Advent series, and uh, we're going to resume it in a couple of weeks. But what I'd like to do today is look to a passage of Scripture that talks about what it means to make a resolve. And this is the time of year, this is the day of the year, when many of us make resolutions, many of us make commitments. Many of you, perhaps in recent days and weeks, have been thinking about this day and thinking about what you want to do differently in 2017 or, or commitments you made last year that you want to continue in this year. And so as followers of Christ, I think it's important for us to consider these resolutions in light of what God's Word says. Uh, should we even make resolutions as Christians? And if so, what should they look like? And so I think a passage of Scripture that helps us uh, to that end is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we're going to read verses 3 through 12 and then just walk through this passage together in hopes of better understanding what it looks like to have a biblical resolve as we enter into this year, 2017. Uh, so I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. And because this is God's inspired word, out of reverence for it, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read God's word for us this morning. And this is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast and faith, steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you were enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would, pray with me. Father, I pray that this word that we just read would be one that You would use in our lives this first day of a new year, that we might resolve to live for Your glory and Your glory alone, that we might better understand the Gospel and how the gospel should influence and impact and determine what it is we resolve to do this year. And we ask that you might help us to do these things in the power of your Holy Spirit. 
In the name of Christ we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to start by uh, congratulating you on being at church every Sunday this year and uh, encourage you to, to press on in your steadfastness. But if, if your resolution was to go to church every Sunday, you, you're doing well so far. And so we appreciate you being here. Uh, as you think about this whole idea of resolutions, uh, it's important to consider where some of these things come from. As best I can determine from my own personal study, the, the whole idea of making New Year's resolutions uh, goes back to the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans, uh, as you may know, they worshipped a number of false gods, and, and one of those gods that they worshipped was the god Janus. Uh, Janus was depicted as having two faces, uh, one looking to the future and one looking to the past. And so the Romans believed that Janus knew not only what had took place in the past, but what was coming in the future. And so they would begin each year by making promises to this false god they worshipped. Uh, promises as to what they hoped would come in the coming year. That name may sound a bit familiar because it's where January comes from on our calendars today and marks the beginning of each new year. We also can find that the ancient Babylonians made promises uh, to their many gods at the beginning of the year. Uh, specifically, they would promise to return borrowed objects and to pay back their debts. Uh, certainly, this whole notion of making these commitments has evolved over the years and over the centuries. I would guess that most people last night did not bow down to a Roman altar, to a Roman false god, or didn't practice any type of Babylonian worship. And yet at the same time, many people made resolutions. But even this whole notion of making resolutions in our culture today has transitioned a bit. Just a century ago, we can read the resolutions of many. And what we find about 100 years ago was the typical resolution had to do with focusing on how to help others, how to practice good works, how to improve a person's character. And now we see, a century later, most resolutions are focused around improving ourselves, improving our own looks, our own weight, our own health, our own image. And we find that most of these resolutions, however, don't get very far. One study I read noted that about 90% of people fail at the resolutions they set and that that failure was less likely when specific goals were made. For example, uh, the goal being, uh, I'm going to lose a pound a week instead of a lot of weight. Uh, in my case, I finished last year well. My goal was to gain a couple of pounds each day over the holidays, and I, I think I did pretty well at that. Uh, resolutions, of course, uh, do better when we have accountability from others, and that's something I want us to consider as we think through more biblically-influenced resolutions today. Because I don't think we need to pay so much attention to the ancient Romans or Babylonians, but there are uh, some ways, I think, as, as Christ's followers, we can consider resolutions not so much about ourselves, but at how we can live for the glory of God. Uh, one person who made resolutions along this line who's had a great influence on me was a great pastor and theologian during the First Great Awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards, if you're familiar with him, had a list of resolutions that he made. He began writing them when he was 19 years old. He wrote about 70 of these resolutions. I read through them every year. And his goal was to read these resolutions every week. 
and to measure his life by them. I'll give you just a few. Number six on his list was resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour of my life. Number ten, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Number 28, and one I want us to consider today, resolved to study the Scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And so as we, we think about what it means to make resolutions more along the lines of Edwards and less along the lines of the Babylonians and Romans, I want us to just walk through this passage this morning because this is a passage where Paul notes that the resolve of the Thessalonians, where he prays for their resolve, and he notes their growth in their faith. And so I want us to start there as we consider our own resolve. Uh, number one there in your outline, that in this new year, we should resolve as well to grow in our faith. Uh, resolve to grow in your faith. Uh, Paul notes this uh, along with Silvanus and Timothy uh, about the Thessalonians. He notes that their faith has been growing. Verse 3 there he says, uh, because your, great, your, your faith is growing abundantly. Uh, that term there, growing abundantly, is one word in the Greek. It, it means to, to, to grow abundantly in a way that exceeds expectations. And so Paul is basically writing to these believers in Thessalonica, and he's saying, I, I have seen, I have heard of your faith, and you have exceeded my expectations. You, you are growing abundantly in your faith. Now, we should pursue this, we should resolve to do this. The question is, how? And how do you even measure growth in your faith? I know how to measure growth in my body. I know how to get on a set of scales and tell how the holidays affected my weight. We that have taken our children to the doctors through the years, your grandchildren to the doctors through the years, we know what it is to look at a growth chart. And to come back and say, oh, they're, they're in the 50th percentile or the 90th percentile. We know what it is to measure height and weight. So how do you measure spiritual growth? Well, what does that even look like? It can seem sort of ambiguous, can it? If you were to say, oh yeah, looking back on the last year, I really grew a lot spiritually. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Scripture helps us to be biblically informed as to what it looks like to truly grow spiritually. And Paul here notes that that growth is taking place in the Thessalonians' lives, noted by some fruit. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. You know growth by fruit. And notice here that Paul notes a couple of the fruits in the Thessalonians' lives. First, notice there in verse 3, he shows the fruit of their growing faith and their love for one another. And he notes the love that every one of you has for one another, how that love is increasing. Now, when we think of love, we often think of kind of the ooey-gooey, emotional, you know, I love you, I love you, I love you more, and I love you more, and Valentine's Day and those types of things. But, but there's a lot more depth to this type of love. Now, the word used here in the Greek is agape. And agape love 
It is a benevolent love that we see God show to us irregardless of our desire for it. It looks like this. Perhaps you can identify with this, parents. You love your children. And out of your love for your children, there are times that you do things for them and to them that you know are for their good that they may not desire at the time. It is a loving thing at some point to say to them, you probably don't need to eat any more candy. That's a loving thing to do. You might have had that experience over the holidays. It's a loving thing, perhaps, to say to your teenage son, you don't have to eat the whole bag of Reese Cups in one sitting. That's a loving thing. Because if you eat the whole bag of Reese Cups in one sitting, things aren't going to go so well for you. And you, as the wiser parent, you, you know these things. And so you point them out, you train, you instruct. Out of your love, you, you are being benevolent and kind, although it might not be perceived as that sometimes. And that's the kind of love God shows to us. In fact, that word agape love is the word used in John 3.16 where it says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You can study the Gospels. You can study the context of what's taking place at the time that Jesus' ministry was happening and you will not find a group of God-fearers getting on their knees saying, God, we pray that you would send the Messiah so he would die on the cross for our sins. In fact, when Jesus himself says that, the disciples are confused about it because that's not what they perceived the Messiah was going to do. They thought the Messiah was going to come and establish a political reign here and now, God's kingdom on earth. When Jesus is talking about going to the cross, they don't understand that. And yet God is showing His love toward them in a benevolent way, His love toward us in giving us and giving them ultimately what we truly needed. But we don't need a political ruler. We need an eternal king. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, God shows His love in that benevolent way and we are called to show our love in the same way to others. And notice here, that Paul is commending the Thessalonians on showing this type of love for one another. So what does this mean? Well, this means that the Thessalonians were speaking truth and love to one another. In fact, Paul will later comment on that to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, and he'll instruct them and us to speak the truth in love. This means they were loving each other in a way where they were able to speak truth into each other's lives, even if that wasn't what they wanted to hear at the time. And so, maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've had a time when someone you love and someone who loved you or you cared about had to call you out on something. Had to say to you what you were doing was wrong. Had to keep you accountable. Had to keep you in check. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to Pastor Matt, he doesn't respond so well. Pastor Matt really doesn't like you to get in his face and tell him what you're doing is wrong. In fact, Pastor Matt tells me all about this because I don't mind it when people tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Of course I mind it when people tell me that. None of us, well, I'll say most of us in this room, probably our immediate response to being confronted on something, in that immediate moment, our immediate response usually is not, thank you so much for calling me out on that. Thank you so much for telling me what I did was wrong. 
Thank you for opening up the Word and showing me that the Scripture says I indeed am in sin right now. But what is our response usually? Well, well, you know, well, what you don't understand is, well, no, let me make sure, no, no, no. And we defend and we excuse. Because we don't like being called out. Now, prayerfully, as we grow in our faith, our response gets a little better. But what we see in the Scripture is that we are to be a people who call one another out in sin, and we're to be a people who respond to that in grace and truth to one another. And so when Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 15, we are to speak the truth in love. He's saying we need to make sure we're doing both of those things. And in the church today, there seems to be some confusion on this. On one end, we have people who are all truth and no love. And you have encountered this. Maybe you have participated in this. People who just love to point out when you're in sin. And they love to point out when other people are in sin. And so, news comes on. Look at that person. I can't believe they're doing it. That is wrong. Oh, look at this. They're doing it. This is wrong. Look at what you're doing. What you're doing is wrong. And they're really good at telling you and everybody else that what they're doing is wrong. But so often what's missing from that is any love. And at the same time, on the other end, probably perhaps more so, we have people who think, well, no, I, I don't need to ever tell anybody what they're doing is wrong. I just need to show them love. Love, love, love. I just need to be the most loving person on the planet. And if I just show them this love, all that's all they need is my love. And so we look over sin and we ignore sin and we even accept sin in our lives and other people's lives because we don't want to offend anybody. Because we don't want to be judgmental. Well, notice the Scripture says here not to just do truth without love and not love without truth, but to speak the truth in love. Friends, it is a loving thing to go to another follower of Christ and graciously warn them about sin in their life. It is a loving thing to go to a lost person who doesn't know Christ and warn them about the coming judgment of God. And the scripture says there's a gracious way to do this, to speak truth in love. And I believe here Paul is commending the Thessalonians on this. And that's one way you can measure growth in your Christian life. Am I growing in this area of speaking truth in love? He also notes another fruit. He talks about how they are remaining steadfast in their faith, verse 4, in all their persecutions and afflictions that they're enduring. And so Paul here goes from saying, listen, you're, you're really growing in this area, speaking the truth and being loving to one another in this way. I'll tell you what else I'm seeing. You're remaining steadfast in the midst of affliction. In essence, what Paul is saying here is he says, I, I can see growth in your life because you're suffering well. Friends, there, there, there is so much confusion in the church today about how Christians are to respond to suffering. And I tell you, there, there are few things more toxic, more wicked in the body of Christ today than the lie, the deception of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Because it's a gospel, a false gospel, that tells us that there is no room for suffering in the Christian life. There is no 
purpose for suffering in the Christian life. It is a false gospel that says to you and I, if you are indeed suffering today, it is because of your lack of faith. And if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't suffer. And if you feel like you are suffering and you admit to that suffering in some way, well, you just gave the enemy all kinds of power in your life. You should never ever admit that there's suffering or sickness or trial or adversity because if you do, not only is that a sign of your lack of faith, but you're just empowering the enemy in your life. Now, in case you just walked in the last five seconds, what I just said is a bunch of garbage and junk, okay? Just want to make sure you got that. But, but this is how prevalent it is. It's all around us. It's hard for you to walk in a Christian bookstore and not see a book pushing this. It's hard for you to turn on the television set and something under the label of Christian and not hear this type of garbage coming at you. I, I should resolve not to be on Facebook, but I was on Facebook last year, and this is what I read. <laughs> I had a friend I grew up with, haven't seen this guy in 20 years. It was his birthday, and so go on there, spend five seconds, say happy birthday. And as I do this, I noticed that he recently had commented on sickness. Uh, he's going through a pretty severe sickness, it appears, and they're not sure what it is. And uh, essentially, he, would just, he wasn't complaining. He was just saying, hey, uh, thanks for the happy birthdays. Uh, it's been a hard day. I'm dealing with this. Just pray for me. I don't know this person. I'll be careful not to come up with a nickname for him because it's then I'd sin. Anyways. Um, this is what someone wrote on his Facebook after that. Hey, I'm inspired to say this. Be intentional about what you confess or proclaim. Also be careful about what you confess or agree to. The enemy will take you out, as he has me at times, if he can get you to agree with a lie. I'm considering my words very carefully right now. I don't know what the Christian way to cuss about something is, but that's how we should respond to this. This is garbage. It's absolute garbage. And it has so infiltrated the Christian life today that many of us walk around and give the same type of garbage advice to one another. Well, if you just have enough faith, well, well, be careful about what you say, because if, if, you, if you confess that or proclaim that, then the enemy will take you out if you agree with a lie. Who, who has the power in that statement? The enemy and you. Who's powerless in this? God. Friends, the Scripture informs us that God in His goodness will allow suffering in our life that at times will seem unbearable. And our response is not to be, turn that frown upside down. And our response is certainly not to be, well, be sure you don't agree with it because then you gave the enemy some power there. What is our response to be? Second Thessalonians. This is the evidence of the righteousness, of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffered. Verse 4, 
We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions you're enduring. We are called as a people of God to be steadfast and to be faithful. And it doesn't say don't weep. It doesn't say don't grieve. But it says as you weep and as you grieve, trust in the sovereign hand of God. Don't trust in yourself. And don't trust in any two-bit toxic theology that somebody's peddling at you. Trust in the Word of God which tells us there is a purpose for suffering. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as something strange were happening to you. And so when we suffer as a believer, we, we shouldn't say, Wow, I just don't know why this is happening. I mean, if anything, friends, you know what the, the Scripture should lead us to say? I don't know why more of this isn't happening. In this fallen, messed up world, I'm undeserving of the grace of God. I don't know why every day is not the worst day. And yet the Scripture says, don't be surprised when that trial comes. Why? Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. For if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of the glory, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The, the Scripture here reminds us that when we suffer, it is with purpose. And when we suffer, it's according to the plan that God has. And friends, when we suffer, perhaps God is allowing us to suffer, though we may not ever desire it. Because God, through that suffering, is seeking to grow us in our faith. A great work I commend to you along these lines is by C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. I'll give you just a sentence from it. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Point two. Resolve to be a gospel witness. C continuing in this theme of persecution and suffering in the lives of the Thessalonians, you note here that Paul encourages them to suffer in light of the return of Christ. He says that, that, that you're suffering, but since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant us relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Paul here puts the Thessalonians suffering in a context and there's two aspects of this. To the Christian, listen to what he says. He says, suffering is temporal. So here's the good news. Some of you would like to just erase 2016. 2015, maybe the last two or three years. They've been hard years. Maybe you've had hard decades. And you would just like to, to get rid of them. You are praying that this year is not like those years. And for some of you, this year will have suffering beyond anything you've ever known. But here's the good news. It's temporal. 
It's for a moment. You might consider it this way. Imagine I were to have uh, uh, some twine this morning and I were to hold one end of the twine and I were to ask one of you, okay, uh, walk over there to Bart Smart. I'm guessing most of you could do that. No, that's not long enough, so I said, all right, just go ahead and walk up the hill there towards the post office, and I'm sure a few y'all be, okay, we'll go that far. But what if I said, no, just, just go on up to Louisville with this. Actually, when you get to Louisville, why don't you head west and, and just, just go until you get to the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> now, just imagine for a second that the length of twine that would stretch from Bloomfield to the Pacific Ocean. And then, I don't know, maybe somewhere around Kansas. There's not much in Kansas. You could probably stretch twine across Kansas. You take out a Sharpie, and you just put a little dot on that twine. And that doesn't even begin to compare the temporalness of this life in light of the grandness of eternity. And friends, here's the good news. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to get there. Christ, Christ has purchased that on your behalf. You're going to get there. And, and eternity, in comparison to this, that this is a blink. This is a millisecond of a millisecond. It is brief, and it is temporal, and it is over. And Paul's encouragement here, God's encouragement to us, is in your suffering, don't ignore it, don't pretend it's not there, but understand it in light of eternity. We sang of it this morning. Christ is returning. And in His return, He will indeed make all things new. That's the good news. Now here's the awful news. Verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 8, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you are here this morning, and you are not a follower of Christ, you're disobedient to the gospel, you've yet to repent and place your faith in Jesus. I'm not asking this morning if you've been baptized, or what church you're a member of. I'm, I'm asking, I'm saying this morning, if you have yet to confess Jesus as your Lord and bow your knee to Him and live your life in obedience to Him, if you have not done that, then a length of twine from here to California doesn't begin to measure the eternal weight of damnation that is upon you. And the judgment of God that will be unleashed on you for all of eternity. It may not seem this way, but friend, I hope you know, the most loving thing I can say to you right now is repent and be saved. It is not loving for me to say to you, here's ten ways to have a better year. It's not loving for me to say to you, fake it till you make it. It's not loving for me to say to you, well, just, just try to be a good person. The most loving thing I can hopefully convince you of today is that hell is not just for the Islamic terrorist who blows up a building. Hell is what we all deserve. The Scripture says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how hard you or I try, we all fall short of the glory of God. 
And the scripture says that the wages of that, the wages of that sin is death and eternal damnation and eternal wrath of God on us. But the scripture says God demonstrated his own love, that benevolent agape love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we will confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And so the good news, bad news here that Paul is sharing with the Thessalonians is, believer, if you're suffering, it's for a moment. Non-believer, if you're suffering, it's just getting you warmed up. And the call there is not only to repent, the call is for us to be a gospel witness, friends. And so how do we live in light of these things? One, if you're a believer this morning and you're suffering, recognize it's temporal but also recognize for many people it will be eternal. And the best thing that I believe we can do as a church in this new year God has given us is for us to recognize that lost people indeed are lost people. And that as much as we need to take the gospel around the globe while we're doing that, we need to take the gospel across the street. And we need to take the gospel down the hall in our house. And we need to take the gospel to our neighbor who seems to be such a good, benevolent, loving person and they get our mail when we're gone and they take care of the yard and they pay their taxes and they seem like such a good person. And we need to recognize what God says about them. That apart from repentance and faith, we too would be under the wrath of God. And the most loving thing we can do is be a gospel witness to them. Point three, and we'll end with this. We need to resolve to glorify King Jesus. Paul ends this first chapter by noting that, that all these things, that this resolve ultimately is to bring glory to Jesus. Verse 12 says you're, you're to resolve and do these things so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we, we don't really need any more people in our world today to stand up and say, look at how great I am. We, we, we would do well not to have another leader stand up and say, look, look, look at me. Glorify me. And yeah, that's what we're surrounded by. We see it in politics, we see it in, in athletics, we see it in Hollywood and entertainment. All these people who stand up and say, look, look at me! And they want glory for themselves. And here Paul notes about the resolve of the Thessalonians that they're doing all these things so that ultimately Christ might be the one resolved. You want some advice for this year? People always come to pastors for advice. They look at us like magic eight balls. Like we're, oh yeah, we're, here's what you're supposed to do, you know. So, so here, here's what you're supposed to do. Make every decision in light of the glory of Christ. So before you ask anyone else, well, what should I do about this job? Should I take this job? Should I keep this job? Should I move jobs? What should I do? Just, just stop and consider how will this glorify Christ? You say, what do you mean, how will it glorify Christ? I mean this, what has Jesus himself said to us? What has he commanded us to do? 
You know, nowhere in the scripture have I read that, that Jesus said, Richard Carwell, in October of 2010, my will for you is to move to Bloomfield, Kentucky. So when Sandy and I were praying about the decision to come here to this community, we, we didn't open up, you know, 3 Thessalonians. Oh, okay, there, that's what we should do. You know, Fairfield Hill, oh yeah, that's it. But, but what someone taught us to do a long time ago, we, we were both greatly impacted by the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. I became a believer, a follower of Christ through that ministry my freshman year of college. She grew tremendously in her faith at Meredith College through it. What, what somebody taught us both to do was to evaluate our life in light of the glory of God. Bill Bright started that ministry back in 1951, and over the years, so many people asked him about God's will. How do you know God's will, college students especially? You know, how do I make this decision? How do I know? And He wrote a letter called the Paul Brown letter. There was no Paul Brown. He just said, well, this is pretty much my advice I give to anybody asking these questions. And somebody shared that letter with Sandy and I when we were both young college students. And basically what he puts in that letter is, as you make a decision, just, just write down your pros and cons and write down what you think about doing, but ultimately measure these things based on what you know of God. Jesus, Matthew 28, says we are to make disciples of the nations. So if I do A, how will that affect my ability to make disciples of the nations? Or if I do B, how will that affect my ability to be, make disciples of the nation? And if it's really not going to affect it, well then just pick one. But understand that, that so many decisions we make will have a radical effect on our ability to make disciples of the nations and ultimately on who we're seeking to bring glory to. So when you make decisions this year, the first thing you and I should consider is how will this decision bring glory to God? Will this decision bring glory to God? Or is this decision just about me? We live in a culture obsessed with people making decisions about them. It's time for the church of God to stand up and to make decisions that will bring glory to Christ. And so friends, as you consider this new year God has given to each of us, consider how will you live it for the glory of Christ? How will the resolves you make ultimately bring glory to God? And how will these affect your abilities your ability to follow God's will. You want to know God's will? Read His Word. Spend time in it. Here's good news. If you read His Word today, you've read it every day this year. You know. Tomorrow, you're on a roll. Three days, you know, miss a day? Well, at least you did every week this year. You know, just, just, just make a resolve. And ultimately, seek to live for God's glory. And that is my prayer for our church. And I hope you will join me in praying that.